podcast you didn't know you needed where we talk history through pope colored glasses and some of the craziest most popular stories you've never heard of with special guests pius the 12th it's a real joy for us to welcome you all here john paul the second i would like to invite each of you to listen do not be afraid and jesus christ Sir, we don't have any recordings of Jesus Christ. What? But I saw him in those movies. No, sir, those were actors. And actors playing Jesus Christ. So grab some Eggs Benedict and your buddy Gregory because... P.A. Jesu Domine, Dona Eis Requiem. This is a popular, popular podcast. Do not be afraid. Welcome to the Popular History Podcast. History Through Pope-Colored Glasses. My name is Greg, and this is episode one, Rocky. Now, though this is episode one, it's far from our first episode. For the last few months, we've been going through a series of world-building episodes, making the Pope-Colored Glasses we'll be using to look at history once we go on into our main show. Those episodes will resume after this. I'd hoped to have them finished before it was time to do this episode, but that project's taking much longer than I'd initially expected in order to do it well, and I refuse to do it poorly, at least more poorly than I have to by my own limitations. But I can't move the date of one of the most important days in the church calendar, so happy Feast of St. Peter! Which means, whether I like it or not, and whether my world-building episodes are far enough along or not, it's time to talk about St. Peter. So, spoiler warning for those who've been listening to the world-building episodes and genuinely don't know the story of Jesus and the apostles and all that stuff, we'll resume that series after this episode. So feel free to skip this one and circle back to it later if you don't want spoilers. And with that warning in place, let's go ahead and take full advantage of the most fitting day to officially launch a Pope-themed history podcast. It's also the Feast of St. Paul, but he already gets plenty of airtime having written like half of the New Testament, so forget him. We'll be celebrating June 29th every year, just like the Catholic Church does. Traditionally, it's when the pallium is distributed to the archbishops of the world, which is, well, it's an interesting ceremony. There's lambs specially raised to make the wool and all that stuff. We might talk about that sometime. But for today, we'll go through the story, really the stories, of St. Peter. And we'll only get to some of them. Now, Peter is the only pope who's going to get the more or less comprehensive treatment on this feed. At least, you know, his own dedicated episodes that are about St. Peter specifically. I generally want to offer something different rather than the standard histories of the papacy here. Rather, I want to tell a variety of stories using the papacy as a lens to view history. That's the pope-colored glasses I keep mentioning. The popes themselves will always be present in the episodes, somewhere, or, you know, maybe just spiritually, but with the exception of a few stories specifically about the papacy that are just too good to pass up, uh, the popes won't be our only focus. But Peter is different. For better or for worse, Peter is the one who sets much of the tone for what the intersection between the church and the world is going to be like. His successors influence the papacy and the world and its role in the world, but no one has more of an impact than Peter. Now, let's start with first impressions. 
Here's the first pope, with his first public words as pope, recorded in the book of Acts. Quote, Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. <laughs> so began the first homily in the history of the Christian church. And so begins every homily at my local church, where the pastor keeps books of family-friendly jokes strewn about like Scrooge McDuck keeps gold coins. Some things never change. Of course, if the idea of the papacy is to be an unchanging anchor for the earthly church, which Catholics like me will tell you seems to be the case from Matthew chapter 16, quote, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. End quote. Now, first off, just because you rename someone Rocky doesn't mean they're suddenly a rock. And that's just what's happening here, by the way. Simon, son of Jonah, ends up Peter, son of, well, still son of Jonah. Now, Peter, that's Greek Petros for rock, was certainly a step up from Simon, which is Greek for flat-nosed, which is, frankly, a weird name to have as the most popular Greek name in first century Judea. But Simon is probably popular as a Greek name because Simeon was popular as a Hebrew name, and it was evidently fairly common practice to adopt a standard Greek name that basically sounded like your Hebrew name. Simeon, meaning obedient or listening, sounds better than flat-nosed, and it's one of the twelve tribes, so you know it's going to be popular. While we're going on about the various names for Simon Peter, we might as well include Kephas, which is the Aramaic version of Rocky. Aramaic being the language Jesus spoke with his disciples rather than Greek. Peter pops up 159 times in the New Testament. Kephas appears only nine times, which is, notably, still more occurrences than the Apostle Jude, who, incidentally, is usually listed as Judas in the Bible, but after the whole Judas Iscariot thing went down, well, no wonder this Judas went and got a name change. And, by the by, even with only being named eight times in the whole dang Bible, this Judas manages to have a third name, Thaddeus. So, yeah, Peter isn't the only one with a lot of names. Ah, uh, well, that was a tangent and a half. If you've been listening to the world-building episodes, you're used to these by now. And if not, well... Fair warning that when there are threads to follow, I'm going to follow them. Getting back to the on this rock thing, if that steadfastness is the idea, Peter sure looks like a foolish choice. He's the least darn steadfast apostle, except for Judas Iscariot. It's Peter, after all, who denies Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times in the lead up to the crucifixion, as recorded in every gospel. It's Peter who loses faith when he tries to walk on water in Matthew 14. Heck, it's even Peter who Jesus calls Satan just a few scant verses after the whole getting nicknamed Rocky thing. Even after his redemption arc at the end of John's gospel, taking place after the resurrection and mirroring the denials before the crucifixion, even after all that, we see Peter vacillating in Paul's letter to the Galatians. Of course, that's according to Paul, and it's Paul he's fighting with there, so maybe take that account with a grain of salt. But let's circle back to all that later. 
Before Peter can become an imperfect leader for the early Christians, he has to become a Christian, or rather, a disciple of Jesus, since no one is called Christian until a few years into all this. When Jesus meets Peter and his brother Andrew, they're fishermen, and apparently he invites them to become fishers of men. Ha ha ha! Now I see where Peter gets it from. In any event, Peter's old profession gets a nod in the papal signet ring, which is traditionally called the Ring of the Fishermen. This isn't one ring to rule them all or otherwise, rather it's a new ring for each pope, with the old one being destroyed at the previous pope's death. But we're maybe in a period of change, since Pope Benedict's ring wasn't destroyed, but was rather symbolically gouged. Of course, Benedict also isn't dead yet as of this writing, so maybe they'll finish destroying it later. Who knows? Either way, Pope Francis doesn't have much of a signet ring to speak of, in keeping with his general toned-down approach to pomp and circumstance. He's actually recycling the ring of a previous papal secretary. I believe it was the secretary to John Twenty-Third. Maybe it was Paul VI. I'll have to look that up. Now, if that fisherman diversion wasn't long enough, don't worry, because I've got another sidetrack to go down with the mention of Peter's brother, Andrew. You see, down the centuries, we'll see some quarreling over precedence among Christian churches based not only on whether they were founded by an apostle, but which apostle they were founded by. Conveniently, the church in the most powerful city in the Christian world during these quarrels, that is, Rome, was traditionally founded by Peter, the prince of the apostles. Almost as conveniently, the second most powerful city in the Christian world, called Constantinople by the time we get to it, The bishopric there was traditionally founded by Peter's brother Andrew, who had been called, along with Peter, at the beginning of Christ's ministry. In fact, the Gospel of John indicates Andrew was called first, and then he went back and recruited Peter, a fact which Orthodox tradition emphasizes by labeling Andrew the first called. But enough about Andrew. He ain't Pope. Well, enough about Andrew for now, anyhow. I'll probably do a roundup of all the other apostles' biblical and extra-biblical adventures at some point, including St. Andrew being credited with kicking off the church in Russia, which seems a little early for that area. But you know what? People existed there. Eh, I suppose it's possible. Either way, we've got that episode to look forward to if enough folks remind me about it. For now, though, back to Peter. One interesting detail we do have about Peter is that at some point he was married. We don't know his wife's name, but by the early medieval period, there was talk of a St. Petronilla, who was presented as Peter's daughter. But if we're limiting ourselves to the Bible, which we will, or at least kind of will here for brevity's sake, we can only confirm that Peter at one point had a wife, since he definitely has a mother-in-law lying around for Jesus to heal. Also, 1 Corinthians mentions Peter having a wife as a current event in chapter 9, verse 5, which contradicts the theorizing I've come across that perhaps Peter's wife was dead when he was called. It'd be fairly convenient if she had been, so I'm not surprised to see that argument made, because then St. Peter's role as a husband could be grandfathered in. I mean, there's several popes who legitimately had wives and families um, before they were poped. Well, I mean, they still had families, but you know, at that point their wives were deceased. As it is, it does present a bit of a challenge, not only in Catholicism, where priests are generally barred from marriage and where married bishops are almost unheard of. And when I say almost, I mean I'm sure several of my listeners are looking for a citation, and we'll get to that in another episode. Yes, I'm bringing in the teasers of other possible episodes hot and heavy 
But in any case, Peter's wife also has implications for orthodoxy, where, though married men can become priests, they can't generally become bishops. Clerical celibacy is going to get at least one episode either way, I promise. All right, let's pull a Peter and abandon Peter's wife to follow Jesus, because that seems to be what he does. When Peter does something, he is definitely not a man of half measures. And even if he might change course on whatever it is he's doing, you can bet he'll go off in that new direction with similar gusto. Of course, his enthusiasm for Jesus' following is especially understandable in the account from Luke of his calling, where Jesus does a miracle, making the nets go from a bad no-fish day to a holy carp we're about to sink from all the fish day. This causes Peter to be all, Get away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. So, I guess Peter does have some humility going for him, or at least he talks a good talk. Anyways, Peter carries on from there, shadowing Jesus and racking up those mentions I, well, mentioned before, coming at the head of every list of Jesus' disciples and being included in a core group of followers that pops up at critical moments, Peter, James, and John. Now, James and John, much like Peter and Andrew, Andrew being left out of this core group, so take that, orthodox people. Anyways, James and John, like Peter and Andrew, were also fishermen, and much like Peter, they too got a nickname, the Sons of Thunder. Pretty sweet. You want to know who Jesus doesn't nickname? Andrew. So take that again, orthodox. Actually, it's entirely possible Andrew did get a nickname, since John's Gospel says, quote, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written, end quote. But the world isn't overflowing with all the stuff Jesus did, so first called will have to suffice for Andrew, even though it's not actually a straight biblical nickname. Man, how do you get back on Andrew again? We were talking about the core group of apostles, even corer than the twelve, and Andrew's not invited. We've got Peter, James, and John. On three occasions, Jesus peels off these three to follow him. First, when he miraculously raises the daughter of a man named Jairus from the dead. And no, we haven't gotten much better at naming women. Second, at the Transfiguration, where Jesus gives a clearer look at his divine nature in a private setting. And third, during the agony in the garden at Gethsemane. Now, if I were good at this, I'd have some more insights into Jairus' daughter ready to go. But I'm not, so I don't. So let's look at those other two instances while we're here. At the Transfiguration, described in Matthew 17, Mark 9, and Luke 9, Jesus gets real shiny and hangs out with Moses and Elijah. Upon seeing this, and I kid you not, this is apparently important enough that the three Gospels include it, upon seeing this, Peter is struck with a strong desire to go camping, and he suggests that they set up tents and hang out and presumably roast marshmallows or whatever. Okay, I added the marshmallows bit, but the tense thing is real, and it gets a fair amount of attention as an awkward response immortalized forever. Mark, helpfully, offers an insight into Peter's mind in this moment. Quote, He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. End quote. I feel you, Peter. Now, if you're like me, you might think of the Feast of Booths when Peter mentions tense, especially since the same word, Shukot, apologies for pronunciation, is used for both the traditional Jewish feast and Peter's suggestion in the Septuagint. But beyond that word, there's nothing to suggest that this is a reference to that feast. Speaking of feasts, the Transfiguration itself 
is a major enough event that has got its own feast day on the Catholic calendar. August 6th, so mark that down. Before we jump to the final Elite 3 event, Gethsemane, and where that inexorably leads, let's take a quick tour of other little spots of Peter in the Gospels I'm arbitrarily deciding are worth mentioning. And no, this is not an exhaustive list. It's Peter who asks how many times we should forgive in Matthew 18, and he's told 70 times 7 times, so basically infinity forgiveness. It's Peter who, in John 13, when Jesus decides that allowing him to wash your feet is a mandatory part of following him, which, weird, but okay, in that case it's Peter who says, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And it's Peter who speaks up at the end of the Bread of Life discourse in John 6, after everyone else left due to the hard teaching and Jesus asked if the twelve were going to leave him too. It's Peter who answers, quote, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. End quote. And yet, for all these acts of faith, there are some counterpoints, the kind we briefly looked at earlier. For instance, there's Peter sinking when he loses his faith while trying to walk on the water. Which, to be fair, Peter was also the guy who volunteered to try and walk on the water. So, really, I don't think that's a great example of Peter having little faith. But of course, there's that biggie, that super biggie, Peter's denials which are actually worse than they seem to be at a glance, because when Christ predicted that Peter would deny him three times before the night was out, Peter swore up and down that he wouldn't. Quote, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. End quote. And yet it really is a long night for Peter, because even before he gets around to all that denying, he gets to sucking at staying awake and getting called on it by Jesus. From John 17... This is the agony in the garden now, that scene where Jesus prays that prayer so relevant to today's fragmented church, that they may all be one. Uh, put a pin in that, if you would, and we'll get back to it. But when Jesus returns to his cracked team of Rocky and the Sons of Thunder after praying that prayer, he finds them asleep. And seriously, this is not Peter's night, because Jesus specifically calls to Peter, quote, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? End quote. It sucks when the boss calls you out, especially when the boss is God. And yes, again, this isn't even the only time Jesus called out Peter in this long night, thanks to his predictions that Peter would deny him three times. Predictions which, when the time comes, Peter obligingly fulfills, pretending like he doesn't know Jesus repeatedly. Ouch. All four Gospels tell this story, which is more than can be said of the famous Peter is most deaf the Pope kind of proof passage, with the keys to the kingdom and the binding and the loosing and such, which is skipped in the Gospel of John. Actually, it's worse than that from a proof text standpoint, because there actually is a similar passage in John, but in it, Christ gives the power of binding and loosing to all the disciples present in the upper room. Which makes sense to me, as, for example, confession isn't something you have to go directly for the Pope for except in certain very extenuating circumstances like you punched the Pope. Anyways, where was I? Oh, Peter's denial. Yes, very famous and for good reason. After all that long night, Jesus is crucified, dies, and is buried. Then on the third day, which with day one being Friday, the day of the crucifixion, because 
The Bible counts weird. Anyways, the third day is Sunday, when Jesus is resurrected. Hooray! Peter then pops up at a reasonable pace in post-resurrection gospel epilogues, including the detail where Peter is the first apostle to see the resurrection. Women come, no one believes them, Peter goes to check it out, he sees it, hey, there you go. But he doesn't actually tell anyone, so that's kind of weird and I don't see it particularly helpful. In any case, there's another section that I am truly obligated to share with you because it's just absolutely delightful. Now keep in mind, this account is from John's Gospel, and John is just too darn humble to name himself, going with smooth stand-ins like the other disciple. So without further ado, quote, Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. End quote. The ever-humble John just had to include a detail about him winning a foot race with Peter in the Gospel, a detail which definitely just had to be preserved. By the way, even in John's account, Peter does go in first, so that's still consistent, I guess. I don't know. Of course, to give John some credit, his gospel is the most distinct account, and it has some other cool stuff in it that isn't just John winning a foot race, which, yes, is only recorded in John's gospel. As you may already know, and if you don't, you do now, the other three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all track together more closely than John, and they're called the Synoptic Gospels. There'll be more on that and on whatever Q is, or maybe in the world-building episodes when we get to that. Anyways, one distinct feature of John's Gospel is the way he had presented Andrew and Peter as disciples of John the Baptist, who is a different John than the Apostle, by the way. There's a lot of Johns floating around throughout church history, including 22 Pope Johns, with the 22nd being John the 23rd, because I kid you not, the guy who numbered them accidentally, I guess, added one. But we'll cut him some slack, because that guy had other things on his mind, like being Pope himself. And you guessed it, this is another tease for some future content, because the reason Pope John the 21st <laughs> miscalculated what his regnal number would be is because he seems to have considered anti-Pope John XVI as among his legitimate predecessors. Which, well, it's always fun when a legitimate Pope of the past evidently disagrees with the Church of the present on who was or wasn't a legitimate Pope. And when something is fun and popular, we're going to get to it eventually in this show. There'll be an announcement later about how you can vote for, or even straight up commission, a future show topic. Whew! All that is a very long way of saying that in John's Gospel account, the overflowing net story that we saw when Peter and Andrew were called in Luke is recast here as a post-resurrection narrative, with seven disciples hanging around, including, of course, Peter. And post-resurrection Jesus shows up and he has them try their nets on the other side of the boat, just like he had back in Luke, and they catch an oddly specific number of fish, 153. 153 has a rather lengthy Wikipedia entry, several times longer than its poor neighbors, 152 and 154, which of course is probably true of all the three-digit numbers mentioned in the Bible, looking at you, 666, because being mentioned in the Bible is a key to fame in the English-speaking world, no matter who or what you are. That 153 does scream for interpretation, 
and the most common interpretation in my personal experience is that of St. Jerome, namely that 153 represents all the different kinds of fish in the world as cataloged by the second century poet Oppian. As you may have just flagged when I said second century, that interpretation has some chronological problems, unless John and Oppian are both drawing from the same pre-existing tradition, which, well, would be more likely if the number 153 showed up in Oppian's work anywhere. In any case, whether Jerome is right to cite Oppian or not, he's not, uh, Jerome's take on that 153 fish that ended up in the net, Peter's net, it's his boat, as representing all the different kinds of fish in the world, and therefore as representing all the nations of the world, well, that's the most popular interpretation around. To Jerome, it means the gospel is for everyone, but it's also taken to mean that everyone should be in Peter's net and under his authority. At least that's the sort of thing hardcore papal supremacists like to get when they do biblical exegesis. I'll bet hardcore papal supremacist par excellence, Belefist VIII, had some form of this interpretation written out and tucked lovingly under his pillow. Whew. As a palate cleanser from that beast of a tangent, I'll mention that this has actually been a surprise sneak attack kind of miracle. After all, the disciples only recognized Jesus when the nets had filled, at which point Peter got so dang excited that he jumped out into the water. Forget the boat, forget the other disciples struggling with the massive catch. Peter jumps in and makes his way to shore to get to Jesus. This enthusiasm is an endearing contrast to the point earlier where Peter is overwhelmed, not with joy, but with testosterone, when, seeking to prove just how devoted he is, and really just proving that he hasn't been listening, he responds to the group that's come to arrest Jesus by whipping out his sword and cutting off the ear of the high priest's servant, Malchus. Jesus rebukes Peter, heals Malchus, and submits to all the horrors of scourging and crucifixion, which Mary Pizzullo, over at Steel Magnifica, convincingly contends would have also included some degree of sexual abuse. Well, shoot, now we need another palate cleanser. There's always the feed my sheep thing, which actually comes right after the 153 fish catch in the last chapter of John's Gospel. And though I made it sound like Peter abandoned the others with the fish, and I made it sound like that because he did, so although Peter abandoned the others with the fish just moments ago, when Christ tells Peter to go ahead and bring the fish over, Peter immediately goes back and drags the net ashore, which must have been quite a feat since it's also specified that these are 153 large fish. I've never heard anyone analyze Peter's impressive and borderline miraculous behavior in this fish scene, but it certainly stood out to me when looking back through things and writing this. The fish are turned into breakfast by the sea, which is how this section is sometimes charmingly titled in some translations, and after breakfast, we get into the feed my sheep thing I teased a minute ago. Three times, Jesus asks Peter to take care of his flock. Three times Peter agrees, and Peter is symbolically restored after his triple denial. Personally, if we're looking for a single proof text for the papacy, I'd take this commission as a shepherd over the binding and loosing thing. But it's the binding and loosing thing that the Vatican has in approximately 5200 point font going around as a decorative flourish and say Peter's up near the roof. And if that isn't on the nose enough, look at St. Peter's from above. It's literally shaped like a keyhole. They're all about them keys. Now, believe it or not, that's it for the Gospels. But you're not off the hook yet, since P. 
Peter isn't only present in the Gospels, though boy oh boy is Peter ever present in the Gospels. He's also around in the book of Acts, and of course, the Pauline epistles. But let's look at Acts first. The first order of business, after Jesus pieces out and ascends into heaven, is establishing apostolic succession. I mean, that's not exactly how it's phrased, but that's pretty clearly what's happening when Peter stands up and starts talking to the group of 120 who, incidentally, seem to be mostly unnamed women, if you do the math. They rattle off, you know, Acts and so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so, you know, maybe about 20 people, and then the rest they just say, and the rest are women. So most of that group is women, but don't worry your pretty little head about it. I mean, what does it matter? In any event, quoting a psalm, Peter points out the vacancy left by the suicide of Judas Iscariot, and he says, quote, let another man take his place, end quote. Incidentally, that verse, verse 8 from Psalm 109, reads in full, quote, let his days be few, let another take his place, end quote. And it's been adopted in recent U.S. politics as a sarcastic prayer for insert president I don't like here. Charming. In any event, Matthias is chosen to replace Judas, and the most significant precedent in all of church history is set. Because, thinking as they did that they were very near the end of the world, it really is possible that the apostles may have opted to forgo having successors. But with Peter's suggestion, they didn't which is good for fans of popular history, because otherwise it would have just been Peterific history, since Peter was never called Pope in his lifetime. Now, we already went over Peter's first public speech on that Pentecost, at least in a joking Cliff Notes sort of way. If you're wondering why some people suppose there had been some drinking going on, you know, the only 9 o'clock in the morning, well, that's because something weird was happening in that scene. Most of the crowd gathered from all over the world and without a common language, is suddenly able to understand one another. This is the first mention of what's called speaking in tongues, which has been understood in different ways over the years, some, as usual, weirder than others, most, in my opinion, not being nearly as cool as the elimination of language barriers described here. Now, this is the descent of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. It's a rather significant event, and we'll see the Holy Spirit popping up again and again as we go through our narrative, and honestly, as we go through the rest of history through Pope Color Glasses. But as usual, I digress. Peter's sermon, which he launches into after his opening joke, that itself, as I mentioned, is another tradition practiced by my own parish priest. Peter's sermon is evidently effective, because we're told they baptized 3,000 people that day, which, if you do the math, increases the size of the church by 25-fold. There's an idyllic little scene between this and the next Peter-specific story, which I'm going to throw into my narrative here, because it's lovely, and because this is my podcast and you can't stop me. Quote, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. End quote. In Acts 3, Peter, now very much acting in the place of Christ with 
John filling the supporting role Peter himself had recently occupied, Peter here miraculously heals a lame beggar in the name of Jesus. We're specifically told that beggar gets up and starts walking and jumping around, praising God in the temple courts. What was once a secret ministry under Jesus is now very much a public ministry under Peter in the name of Jesus. Peter takes the opportunity to go into another loud and long public sermon, but before we can get to the baptism finale, Peter and John are arrested by, quote, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees, end quote. They take them before the high priest and several of his family members, but they don't keep them in custody, because as they're questioning Peter and John, the evidence of the miracle Peter just went and did is right there, standing in front of them in the form of a 40-year-old man who was well known to have been lame since birth, and he's just standing there looking on. So they try letting them off with a warning, which probably doesn't go quite as they'd hoped. As Peter and John replied, quote, Which is right in God's eyes? To listen to you or to him. You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking on what we have seen and heard. End quote. And so they don't stop. They carry on into Acts 5, where we have things take a turn. Remember that little interlude about the early Christian community holding their property in common? A man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira try to game that system by joining the Christian community while holding back some money secretly on the side. It doesn't end well for them. Peter, again, fully in a Jesus role, as much as any human can be, sees what's hidden, and he rebukes Ananias for the deception. Ananias dies on the spot. The scene repeats with Sapphira coming in, and she's also miraculously killed as soon as she lies to Peter. Not all recorded miracles are cuddly. But hey, many of the miracles are cuddly, and it's in Acts 5 where the reputation of the apostles, and especially Peter, reaches a point where, quote, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed, End quote. All this attention gets things riled up, and the next few chapters have some notable stuff like the stoning of Deacon Stephen, the first martyr, but none of it is Peter-specific, so we'll go ahead and skip to the next Peterific part. Acts 8 with Simon Magus, a.k.a. Simon the Sorcerer, a.k.a. Simon the Magician, which makes him sound like he does a lot of eight-year-old's birthday parties. So I guess we'll stick with Simon Magus, or maybe just Simon. Now, Simon's day job is doing magic tricks in Samaria, so he wants to know if the apostles will let him buy his way into their miracle business so he can really up his game. Peter scoffs at the idea, and a new word is born. Simony, the selling of religious offices or holy things. We'll see a lot of simony as we go through the future series. For now, Simon apparently manages to avoid an Ananias and Sapphira smiting by quickly asking forgiveness. That's the end of the Bible's bid on Simon Magus, but that's super not the end of an extra-biblical fascination featuring Simon Magus and Peter, including the Acts of Peter, where Simon's magical powers are amped up as he magically flies around, but Peter's rebuke, spoiler alert, is amped up accordingly. Also, Simon Magus has my favorite nickname. It's not from the Bible, but it's just great. I mean, it's a foil to something that is in the Bible, because you know the parable of the Good Samaritan? Well, Simon Magus, hailing from Samaria, gets nicknamed the Bad Samaritan. 
which personally, I mean, that that's just great. I love it. Leaving extra biblical stuff and nicknames aside, at least for now, we're in Acts 9, so it's time to get extra biblical by introducing the traditional author of literally the majority of books in the New Testament, the apostle to the Gentiles, the man mentioned more times in the New Testament than anyone not named Jesus, outpacing even Peter, Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. Now, Paul wasn't one of the twelve because he wasn't a Christian when Jesus was doing his ministry. In fact, he wasn't even Paul. Or, well, maybe not. At that point, he was Saul. And when the Christians started popping up, he was a big fan of persecuting them. Now, it seems like Saul was his Hebrew name, and Paul was his Roman name, similar to the Simon versus Simeon thing we talked about with Peter. So it's not clear that this was really a name change, like Simon being turned into Peter slash Kephos slash Rocky had been. But Paul definitely seems to be his preferred name now, which fits with what appears to be the main point of contention between the two great saints who ultimately go down as dying in the same persecution and sharing a feast day, namely how much of Jewish tradition the fledgling Christians should maintain as they expand their roots from Jewish only to the Samaritans and even to the Gentiles more broadly. That topic is actually still relatively actively debated today, with different branches of Christianity taking different approaches, and the relationship between Judaism and Christianity has been pretty fraught for the entirety of history after Christ burst into the scene in the late Second Temple period. We'll look at all of this much more deeply in the future, and a little bit more deeply as we finish out this episode, but for right now, just know that it is a thing. Acts 9 may have started with Paul, but it sure is shooting ends with our boy Peter. And in fact, if you ask me, we're getting into the most Peter-centered stretch in the whole Bible. And yes, I'm including the two books of the Bible credited to Peter, which I'll go ahead and get those out of the way now by noting that 1 and 2 Peter reveal basically nothing that we don't already know about Peter, his role, or his ministry. So we won't be focusing on those letters here, except to note, I hope not too insultingly dismissively, that modern scholars who may not be right, but who, to their credit, try to be, those modern scholars tend to reject Petrine authorship for 1 Peter, and especially for 2 Peter. I don't think he wrote them. Anyways, this Peter-heavy stretch from Acts chapters 9 through 12 kicks off with a couple of miracles. A paralytic named Aeneas, as in like the guy from Troy, Virgil's Aeneas, and a dead woman named Tabitha, they're both made well. Then, Acts 10 goes into a long section where the theme I mentioned earlier, the inclusion of the Gentiles and what implications that has for the Jewish customs the early Christians have so far tended to maintain, that really comes into focus. Here we see a righteous Roman centurion named Cornelius being told by an angel to go seek out Peter. And shortly before Cornelius' messengers reach Peter, Peter has a vision, quote, he saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times and immediately the sheet was taken back into heaven." End quote. Soon, the basic meaning of this vision starts to become clear, because 
Next thing Peter knows, a Gentile, who Peter helpfully explains would normally be considered unclean and inappropriate to meet with, is asking to meet with Peter. And based on that vision, Peter accepts. After an initial exchange that basically goes, hey, what's up, man? Not much, just doing what God tells me to do, followed by, yeah, same. Peter goes into one of his sermons, which, as usual, is basically just a recap of what's happened in the New Testament so far, followed by an invitation to baptism. Of course, this is no normal baptism, because Cornelius' household will be the first among the Gentiles, that is, the non-Jews, to be baptized, therefore representing, at least insofar as I understand such things, the most significant fundamental break in the parting of ways between Christianity and Judaism. Now, with that added gravitas, the Holy Spirit helpfully gives another nudge. Quote, While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles, for they had heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. End quote. In Acts 11, Peter basically recaps what happened so that folks would all be on the same page now, which, at least for now, means they're all pretty far along on the leave Judaism behind end of the spectrum, this being the high watermark for that basic position in the Bible, though we're not quite as far along as some Christian groups would end up being later. For now, all the Christians in the area are in agreement, though unfortunately for Peter, there's more than just Christians in the area, and killing Christians is evidently a popular move for the local secular ruler, Herod, not the long-dead Herod the Great, mind you, but his son, Herod the Tetrarch. Herod has Peter chained up and placed under guard, 16 guards, but an angel appears and guides Peter out of his prison, with his chains falling off and Peter fully waking up outside in a bit of a daze, realizing that it wasn't just a dream, and so he makes his way to the safety of the Christian women's house, specifically going to the house of Mary, the mother of John, not that John, but a John, who's also called Mark, and yes, that Mark. We'll call her Mary, not that Mary. But Peter's knock is actually answered by Rhoda, who isn't believed when she says Peter's at the door. In any event, there's a few actually named women for you. Now, buckle up here, because I've got a bit of a crazy parallel here. As I mentioned in our world-building episodes, you can spend a lifetime seeking out hidden messages and secret parallels all around the Bible. And many folks have done just that. That's not what I plan to do with this podcast, but this particular bit of paralleling fits fairly well here, and it's Peter-centric, so let's just go for it. First, as a reminder, or as a heads up either way, the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts are pretty universally accepted to be a two-part work. Even the curmudgeonly modern scholars who keep ruining the fun at least agree that they were written by the same author, even if they still get their digs in by being fairly skeptical that that author is Luke. But it's the same author thing that matters here, because the parallel I wanted to look at is Jesus in the tomb and Peter in prison. In both cases, the restorations from being tucked away from the world are met with disbelief when reported, in one case by 
and in the other case, two women. Like the resurrected Christ, Peter appears briefly before going off away, though unlike Christ, who tells them to wait to spread the news, Peter tells the women to let everyone know about his miraculous prison break before he goes off to who knows where. The difference being that the Holy Spirit has now come, so now it's time to go from keeping things secret to telling the whole world, that being the fundamental contrast between the attempted secretish ministries of Luke and the other Gospels and the very out-in-the-open approach we see in Acts. And if you want another detail, I have seen another theory where they say, Acts 12, the scene of Peter's angelic jailbreak, is actually a highly stylized and kind of metaphorical description of Peter's death, which I think, you know, makes some sense when they say, oh, it's not Peter, maybe it's his angel. Like, that makes me kind of think of death, sure. But what makes me think that that's not really a credible theory, and I didn't see anything to address this, is the way Peter rocks up three chapters later in the Council of Jerusalem. And no one's like, oh, well, I thought you were dead. So, I don't know about that theory. I do have one more detail on that fundamental connection with Jesus in the tomb and Peter in prison, though, even if I am skeptical that Peter in prison means Peter's dead. They're both taking place on Passover. Now, whether or not these parallels are real or really are in any way significant, Peter's overall vanishing from the narrative after this point is real. But before we get to his last appearance, three chapters later in Acts, let's take a look at the only significant mention of Peter in Paul's writings. He does get thrown into lists here and there, but the incident at Antioch, which I've clearly been foreshadowing because this is where Peter and Paul are very much in conflict. That's what we need to talk about now. Go to Galatians chapter 2, where Paul lays it out. I'm going to skip reading the whole passage here since it's long, but I'm going to go ahead and make an appendix to this episode that includes it. Give that a listen if you're so inclined. After all, for all my racking on him, it is Paul's feast day too, so I'll go ahead and give him that little plug. To summarize Galatians 2, it looks like there's been a shift back towards a degree of retention of Jewish customs since the heady days of Peter's animal-filled kill-and-eat-sheet dream and the Holy Spirit-sanctioned baptism of the Gentile Cornelius and his uncircumcised household. And Paul is not happy about this shift back, understandably if you ask me. Nothing against Jewish customs, but if my job description were apostle to the Gentiles, and I was expected to do my job effectively after a no-circumcision-required policy had been replaced by something of a mandatory circumcision policy, well, I'd be pretty mad about it too. From Paul's description, it seems like James had been behind the change in policy. And, notably, Paul doesn't describe any resolution of the conflict. He only talks about his opposition to Peter. Now, though it's not certain, that fact, the unresolved conflict, may support a popular understanding of the timeline of this event, this incident at Antioch, as it relates to the last appearance of Peter in the book of Acts, the Council of Jerusalem. It seems like the incident at Antioch happened um, maybe 49 AD, and then the Council of Jerusalem, about 50 AD. So jump over to Acts 15, which, like the incident at Antioch, I'm just going to summarize here, plugging the relevant passage into the appendix. Again, do give that a listen if you're so inclined. I really do think it's worthwhile, since this is the last time a large group of the remaining apostles has reported this gathering, and is generally understood as setting the precedent and being kind of the protoform of the church councils we'll see in the future after the conversion of Constantine. Now, Paul and his buddy Barnabas 
go up to Jerusalem to see what they should do about Gentiles being asked to follow Jewish law, from circumcision, including as adults, ouch, to dietary law, and presumably all or at least a chunk of the rest of the law of Moses, generally speaking. I don't pretend to be well informed here, and I welcome anyone who wants to help enlighten. A popular history at gmail.com. That's popular with an E. You know the drill. At the Council of Jerusalem, it's Peter who speaks first after the deliberations, with the fundamental rejection of the idea that Gentile Christians should be expected to follow Jewish law and customs. But it's James who closes the topic, and he gives the particular advice, phrasing his judgment on the matter as being in agreement with Peter, a claim which I'm going to have to label as only partially true in my role here as fact-checker, with apologies to James, because though he gives lip service to Peter's principle of making things easy on the Gentiles, and frankly he does yield on the significant matter of circumcision, that trademark won't mark, he does still insist that even Gentile Christians should, quote, abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. So it's not a complete abrogation of the dietary laws of Moses he's presenting. Now, where do contemporary Catholics stand on this, and where have Catholics stood throughout the years? Well, the prohibition on, quote, sexual immorality has generally and pretty famously stuck around, so I think that's clear enough. As for food polluted by idols, that's generally not a contemporary problem. It was one in the past, except perhaps by analogy. When it comes to the meat of strangled animals and blood, those prohibitions, at least nowadays, are basically gone, along with the rest of the cash ruth, that is, the Jewish dietary laws. And now, Peter well and truly disappears. He'd gone pretty well into hiding after his prison break in Acts 12, when he had, quote, left for another place, after telling Rhoda and Mary, not that Mary, to spread the news. The general motivation behind this might already be clear to you. At this point, Christianity was still little more than an obscure offshoot cult in the process of breaking from Judaism. It didn't have any civil protection. The imperially sanctioned religious authorities could have them prosecuted, potentially even put to death by the Romans, as it happened to Jesus, and certainly it was possible for them to be extrajudicially killed, as St. Stephen had been. Even when it came to imprisonment, Peter and the other early Christian leaders couldn't necessarily count on an angel to bail them out every time, though it's worth noting that that actually happened not once, but twice in the book of Acts. The first time I skipped because it wasn't particularly Peterific, it was just basically the escape of Peter happening, but to all the apostles. Ooh, maybe that means all the apostles are dead at this point. There's a theory, let's run with that. So anyways, yeah. Bad things could happen, so if things go fairly dark when it comes to Peter, and they do, it might be because he's laying low. That makes sense. We do know he was in Antioch, at least at some point, if the Bible is to be believed, since he was on hand for the incident at Antioch, which the name gives away the location. And that tradition of Peter being in Antioch is a bit expanded on by the Liber Pontificalis, which is the oldest listing of papal biographies that's intended to chronicle all the popes. It gives seven years as the time Peter spent as Bishop of Antioch. That said, though the Liber Pontificalis was accepted uncritically for a good long time, well, scholars have really taken it to task in recent years, more than any of the Bible stuff we've been talking about so far. So, though I'll bring it up to see what it says as a reference point that would have been accepted by many of the posts we'll be talking about, 
definitely don't take the Liber Pontificalis as reliable. It's more along the lines of interesting stories and traditions, a little more than that. One issue, for example, in the Liber Pontificalis is that it presents Peter as coming to Rome at the time of Nero, and then reigning there for 25 years before being martyred. But Nero's full reign was just 13 years and change. And actually, the Liber Pontificalis doesn't specify that Nero was the one who martyred Peter, so maybe they get off on a technicality there. Though that in itself is interesting, because Peter's martyrdom under Nero is both then and now pretty famous. There are a lot more accounts of Peter's martyrdom in Rome under Nero than there are of Peter just kind of being in Rome, for want of a better word, Pope-ing, before his death. There are a couple of relatively near-contemporary writings mentioning or potentially mentioning Peter in connection to Rome, though. There's an early 2nd century letter to the Christians of Rome from St. Ignatius, Bishop of Antioch, who, by some traditions, was one of the little children Jesus said to allow to come to him. That Ignatius writes a letter to the Christians in Rome and includes the phrase, quote, I do not, as Peter and Paul, issue commandments unto you, end quote. Incidentally, Ignatius's letter is basically a pious DNR, if there ever were such a thing, with chapter headings like, quote, do not save me from martyrdom, end quote, and, quote, allow me to fall a prey to the wild beasts, end quote. There's also First Peter, which, yeah, I skipped over earlier. Frankly, I'd skip over it now, because I'm about to strongly disagree that it's evidence here, but I guess I'd rather get it over with here than deal with any future follow-up emails individually. First Peter closes with a note that some of the farewell greetings are coming from, quote, she who is in Babylon, end quote. Which, if you stand on your head, stick out your tongue, switch the gender, the city, and you understand it to be code, you could take it to mean that this is a sign that it's Peter, writing from Rome. But honestly, I'm not buying it. I should also note that in the same verse, Mark, yes, probably that Mark, is described as, quote, my son, end quote, but pretty much no one else, not even the most literalist of literalists, tends to interpret that passage, literally, since other Bible passages more clearly outline Mark's family. Peter as his possible dad, that would have been pretty noteworthy. It would have popped up, but it didn't. It's only here. Then, as now, when you say, my son, you're often speaking spiritually. One noteworthy and contemporary source that decidedly leaves off Peter, among a long list of other Christians then in Rome, is St. Paul's letter to the Romans. But I'm inclined to agree with Bree and Fry over at Pontifax that that may well be because Paul was still extra salty at Peter over the whole incident at Antioch thing. And if that's not enough evidence for you, in Romans 15, Paul describes his reluctance to preach where the gospel is already known wanting to avoid building on someone else's foundation. Traditionally, that someone else is a reference to Peter. Okay, so that's Peter's life. As for his death, there's an old and by this point well-established tradition reflected first in the extra-biblical 2nd century Acts of Peter that Peter was crucified upside down at Emperor Nero's command. Why upside down? Because Peter didn't feel worthy to experience the same death Jesus had died. Why was Nero hating on Christians? Because he needed a scapegoat for the Great Fire of Rome, which took place in July of 64. The Liber Pontificalis gives the date of Peter's death as June 29th, 
hence this feast day, though waiting at least 11 months sounds like a very patient mad emperor if you ask me. I think late summer or early fall would make the most sense if this had been a direct response to the Great Fire of Rome. Now, the Liber Pontificalis also records Peter's martyrdom as taking place 38 years after the crucifixion, which, given that the Liber Pontificalis also lists Peter as reigning just a hair over 25 years, that's quite interesting. Is the Liber Pontificalis arguing that there was no pope for over a dozen years? If the pope is defined as the Bishop of Rome? Yes, probably. The Liber lists Peter's time as Bishop of Antioch as seven years, which still leaves five years by their own reckoning that Peter was, I suppose, putzing around in Jerusalem or whatever. But enough of the false gospels and the nowhere near contemporary Liber Pontificalis. Let's get to an account of Peter's martyrdom from someone who was probably there, his eventual third successor, Clement, in his own letter to the Corinthians, sometimes called First Clement, in part to avoid mixing it up with Paul's letter to those same Corinthians. Written probably in 96 AD, it says, quote, Peter, through unrighteous envy, endured not one or two, but numerous labors, and when he had at length suffered martyrdom, departed to the place of glory due to him. End quote. Now it's time to get a bit meta, because I'd like to close this episode out with a little reflection on John's gospel as it relates to Peter and his role in the church, which, if tradition holds, and I'm really not well positioned to say whether tradition holds or it doesn't, in any case, if tradition holds, John would have been well positioned to see the development of the early church as he lived to a ripe old age in Ephesus, in modern Turkey. John would have heard of the martyrdom of St. Peter before he wrote his gospel, in which Jesus says, quote, Very truly I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Now, both the traditional folks and the majority of modern scholars actually agree on that timing in terms of knowing Peter's crucifixion before writing that passage. Though, of course, the traditional folks will still argue that John was nevertheless recalling a prophecy he'd heard many years before. And modern scholars would probably argue, as they tend to, that it probably wasn't John who wrote John's gospel. But still, they'd all tend to agree that whoever did write John would have known of Peter's death. And that small amount of unity between the traditional and the modern should probably be celebrated as a little win in an often contentious relationship between those two overall schools, I guess I'll call them. And think about it. From the traditional view, by the time of his death in 100 AD, John would have seen the careers of the first four popes, not only Peter, but his successor, Linus, mentioned, for our purposes, in 2 Timothy. And there's also Linus's forgettable successor, Anacletus, also listed as Cletus. Either way, not mentioned in the Bible. Like I said, forgettable. And then there's Anacletus' great successor, Clement, who was mentioned in the Bible, in Philippians, and who very nearly added to the Bible himself, first Clement being publicly read in various churches for centuries. Now, John would have seen the struggles, physical, spiritual, legal, and communal of the early church. He would have seen the conflicts between the circumcisers and the anti-circumcisers, between whatever St. Paul was referencing when he said, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and 
I am of Cephas, as divisions of the church. He would have also seen the symbiotic interwoven growth of the secretive Gnostic sect that would continue to divide Christians between those with Gnosis and those without for, well, a really long time. I'm pretty sure there's still Christian Gnostics today. With all of this in mind, I do wonder, in my own way, whether John, the only gospel writer who included this bit, thought of the fledgling papacy as he recorded the words of Christ's prayer for unity among Christians, that they may be one. Alright, with that, we'll call it a show. I do have some quick housekeeping notes before I let you go. First, if you'd like to get more involved, feel free to join the Popular Historians Facebook group, or feel free to reach out to the show with any feedback by emailing popularhistory at gmail.com. For both, that's popular with an E. Get it? It's a Pope pun. Uh, you can also rate us on iTunes. And for those of you wondering when this show really and truly officially launched, it's just now when I uttered those words, because nothing says proper podcast like seeking iTunes reviews. While we're at it, tell your friends. Of course, perhaps even more quintessential than iTunes reviews these days is a plug for the show's Patreon page. But I think I'm still limboing a hair under the hour mark with this episode, and I'd like to keep it that way, so we'll talk about that another time. But I'll share a link to the Patreon page in the Facebook group today, so you can find it there if you're a real go-getter and just can't wait. If you'd rather have things just show up in your feed, rather than having to seek them out, you'll have a bonus feature in the form of the appendix I mentioned earlier to tide you over before our next show in two weeks' time. And yes, I've officially come to terms with my human limitations as a father of three with a full-time job who has a one-man show and helps run a food pantry. As I mentioned from the start would probably happen eventually, we're going to go to a bi-weekly schedule. And not the insane two-episodes-a-week kind of bi-weekly I once proposed, either, but the see-you-in-two-weeks kind. I'll use the extra time to tidy up and re-release the earlier episodes, and then I'll get cracking on premium content, starting with a popular take on the history of Rome, which won't crack the top 10 Roman history podcasts, but I think the top 100 is potentially manageable. Until, you know, there's 100 total somewhere. In any event, two such episodes are already written, so I guess I've already been cracking. Don't worry. I won't be neglecting the main show either, except insofar as I've already neglected it. The next episode's already written, in which we resume our world-building episodes, jumping back where we'd left off before the calendar forced us to rush ahead. See you in two weeks for episode 0.6. Exitus, Reditus. Thank you, as always, to our logo designer, Russ, our sound technician, Billy, the ever-patient Vice Pope, Mrs. Popular History, and a new name for a new voice, our own personal Jesus, who I'm proud to call a friend, Isaac.